Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our webinar, Whatever Happened to Blockchain in the Bond Markets? I'm Dominic Cobson, co-founder of Future of Finance, and I'm delighted to moderate our discussion this afternoon. Now, the bond markets are very large. According to CIFMA, the value of bonds outstanding globally was nearly $16 trillion in 2019, and the pandemic has doubtless increased that number still further. But like another large market, uh, trade finance, they have acquired a reputation for operational inefficiency. The IT and operations costs of banks active in the capital markets has been estimated to cost 100 to $150 billion a year. And the cost of security services, this obviously includes equities as well, another $100 billion. HQLAX recently put the excess liquidity maintained by banks, chiefly to secure a settlement on time and to meet margin calls at $3.65 trillion, uh, which costs them, if you assume a 10%, it's another $3.65 billion a year. Now, to help us test whether blockchain really can cut these enormous taxes on the cost of debt capital, I'm joined by four experts in the field. Judith Etty is CEO and co-founder at CapEx Move, a London-based fintech that focuses on the digitization of the capital markets. Before setting up CapEx Move, Janet worked with EY as an independent consultant on the implementation of risk management and other innovative technologies for financial institutions. Godfrey de Witz is Senior Advisor to the European Repo and Collateral Council of the European Capital Markets Association, but that title scarcely does justice to Gottfried's long experience, influential voice and extensive networks spanning European regulators and central banks, as well as many of us in the money and the bond markets through a variety of roles over a long career at Credit Bank initially in Brussels and Bahrain, with Fortis Bank and with ICAP later next in both Brussels and London. Charlie Berman is CEO and co-founder at Agora Digital Capital Markets, which provides a private permission blockchain network for all participants in the bond markets from pre-issuance to redemption. The network uses smart contracts to solve long-standing obstacles to efficiency in the bond markets. Pablo Di Ramon Laca is Director General of the Treasury and Financial Policy at the Ministry of Economic Affairs and Digital Transformation in Madrid, where he heads the funding and cash management, as well as banking and securities markets and anti-money laundering regulation. He also chairs the European Committee of Sovereign Debt Managers. Now, in addition to our panelists, as always, we also have you, our audience. We want your questions, we want your comments, so send them, keep sending them. Use the Q&A functionality at the bottom of the Zoom screens to do that. As always, we will not be saving those up to the end, but we'll answer them as we go along so you can be an integral part of this discussion right from the start. And I speak for all of us, all five of us, when I say we're gonna be very disappointed if you don't take that opportunity as often as you can. Now this webinar for once is very specifically about blockchain. So I'm gonna begin where bonds begin uh, with issuance, including of course the pre-issuance process. Now bonds, unlike equities, do seem particularly well suited to being issued onto blockchains. They're less complicated, they have regular coupon and redemption dates, and they have uh, uh, activities, I suppose, or corporate actions, if you like, which are susceptible to being put onto smart contracts. Both the World Bank, back in 2018, that's three years ago, and the EIB in April just this year, both of them have issued digital bonds successfully onto blockchain networks. Yet we still have lead managers, depository banks, uh, very expensive magic circle lawyers uh, and asset managers taking cuts out of all of these issues that are made by the issuers. Worse, uh, so far as I can tell, there's still extensive use of Excels, emails, telephone calls and various other legacy systems. So my first question is, where are the benefits of blockchain? By which I mean the lower costs through disintermediation and less reconciliation between the various parties. Where is the greater transparency into investors? 
where is the immediate access to investors instead of going through layers of intermediation. Now, Pablo, um, Spain, like most countries, has a sizable budget deficit, and I'm sure the COVID-19 uh, emergency hasn't done anything to put a dent in that. Um, uh, what are you and your, do you think, I suppose a crude way of putting this, do you think you and your fellow sovereign debt managers are actually paying over the odds to fund your deficits because the bond markets have this archaic infrastructure? Thank you, thank you, Dominic, for the for the invitation. It is it is a pleasure um, to be here. I, I've been described as a as a specialist here, but I, I'm I'm um, you know, I, I'm technically not a specialist in this type of uh, technology. I am the intended audience uh, for 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 many of these um, 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 changes, right? So uh, you're right. We've had to issue um, a lot, and I, I wouldn't describe it as paying above the odds because we, we've managed to issue um, huge amounts, all of us, uh, into um, an, an established, well-known um, technology that we operate comfortably in and that operators are, are comfortable um, um, living within. And it's taken many years to build that trust. There might be improvements further down the road and the technological improvement um, um, serves for just that, but sovereigns do tend to be where the buck stops. So we, um, we, we, we tend not to um, um, prize uh, innovation uh, over uh, security, right? So we tend to be the last to join uh, uh, to these developments. That said, this technology, blockchain and distributive ledger technologies uh, do seem to be uh, a very interesting way to, to, to cut costs in different parts of the process. Whether or not it will be adapted in the medium or even long term is a different thing, but it is a very interesting proposition. There are many aspects in which uh, distributive ledger technologies are best suited for bonds, right? As simple um, uh, shares, on the other hand, have all types of different you know, rights associated, and that complexity can affect the trust that people established in this technology, right? But but bonds, they tend to be uh, fairly simple. And, and so it does tend to be uh, um, an, an ideal uh, target for this. Uh, and there are different stages in the issuance process, pre-issuance, pre the allocation, uh, the book building, et cetera, where this type of technology can reduce time and costs. I wouldn't say that we're all paying above uh, the the um, above the odds because we've all managed to do something quite extraordinary, which is issue enormous amounts uh, in desperate times, and that trust is essential. Uh, but we we do uh, um, want to uh, explore further and gradual as the debt markets are always you know always are, uh, we might eventually uh, adopt uh, incremental uh, tweaks. Um, uh, uh, and and those types of changes into this, right? So so it's a very interesting development worth exploring. Thank you, Pablo. Uh, Junette, you you've heard Pablo agree with me that uh, that bonds are well suited to to blockchain technology. Can I ask you something very specific about about blockchain technology? Because you are deploying it, as it were. Um, if the big opportunity here is to is to put an end to the reconciliation between the various parties to to a bond issue, um, how do we realise that? And secondly, are we really talking about blockchain technology here? Does it have the speed and the scalability to be deployable in markets of this size and scale and importance? 
Yeah, I mean, you touched to a very uh, sensitive point from uh, blockchain people's perspective, because like a lot of people, they have been criticizing blockchain solutions, especially public blockchain solutions, not being fast enough. Or nowadays, when you think about the uh, look at the transaction fees, which are called as gas fees, uh, super high. And people believe that, uh, which makes sense. It's not very feasible to perform many financial transactions on public blockchains. Whereas, uh, you know, as on the top of what Pablo said, I wouldn't also uh, classify myself as an expert in blockchain because I think blockchain is a you know moving target and it's it's also moving pretty fast and every day uh, new things are coming up. So uh, re related with the uh, scaling problem, what we call on blockchain solutions, there are some developments happening. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of intelligent people have been working on those. So um, I can classify them as uh, under, okay, let's say those are classified as layer two solutions. I will try to be, to, to explain some technical details on that. Whatever you put on blockchain is, it goes to the mainnet, which is referred as layer one, which is slow, expensive, and you know, thousands of parties have need to agree, which creates this trustless structure. Whereas the, the, the cons are like, you know, being expensive, being slow, blah, blah. So uh, recent years, people are working on what's called like layer two solutions, which are also referred as rollups. So what they do is they take, you know, a lot of transactions together. And instead of posting them to the mainnet, which is a public blockchain, they package it, they almost compress it and, you know, post a smaller version of it to the public blockchain. So there are two, uh, like, you know, promising uh, verbs uh, on that end, which, which are referred as optimistic rollups and zero knowledge rollups. I wouldn't get into those details. Uh, but the, the, the thing I would like to say is uh, the, the blockchain solutions in the upcoming years will become much, much faster. And also these solutions will have uh, certain components around like data privacy as well. And uh, hopefully in the upcoming years, uh, we will be mitigating those concerns as well. Mm -hmm. So you're really saying, Junit, that we're not, the blockchain technology isn't quite ready yet. Now, Charlie, you, um, I'm sure you, you have, you likewise are working with uh, blockchain technology. Uh, I know you're very hot on, on definitions. We've already heard about layer one and layer two and zero knowledge proofs and all sorts of things. It is an area in which there's lots of, lots of jargon, but can you bring us back down to earth? Is there a, um, is this, is the bond market a place which is dominated by the use of, of emails and um, I'm sure it doesn't use telexes anymore, but is the technology and the systems out of date? And was I right to say that we've had these supranational issues take place? Why haven't we seen a flood of subsequent issues follow their, their proof of the concept? <laughs> there are so many, so many very complicated subjects that have already been touched upon here. Um, can I just make a couple of remarks about what's already been said? Um, one of which is uh, that uh, the first thing we need to do is, is, is for a, a proper education, for, uh, uh, for people to understand um, what we're all talking about. And I think there probably already are people um, on this call and certainly outside who are, are, who are confused. Um, uh, and when we talk about blockchain, blockchain 
covers a very, very broad suite of technologies in the way that it's used. And they're not all the same. Uh, and, and I think it would be um, fairly pointless for us to go into a deep technical discussion on the differences between um, public open blockchains and private network confidential permissioned ones, which is the end of the market that we're focused on, because I simply don't think we have time and we'll probably lose our audience in, in getting that. But let's just say that the, the, the lack of a clear um, taxonomy um, and, and actually some deliberate obfuscation about what people mean is not helpful in terms of furthering this. So um, let's, it, it, when, um, but when we talk about blockchain, uh, I, I'm not a technologist. I spent um, a very long time, several decades doing bond issues. I did my first bond issue um, in the mid 1980s uh, and I carried on doing them until 2018 and I'm pretty useless for doing anything else. But what I do know is about how bond markets function, uh, particularly how prim primary markets function, how secondary markets function. And the reason I'm doing what I am today, um, uh, which is I don't bring huge technology skills, I will never write a line of code in my life, um, is because after several decades doing this, a deep dissatisfaction as I was leaving banking, that really we haven't changed fundamentally any of the processes for the last 25 to 30 years. There have been certain technologies which have come in, um, uh, but fundamentally we still communicate uh, with voice, which will always have to continue. That's a necessary and very important part of processes. And I would hate to see anything reducing that in fact, I would like I, what we're doing. I want to see more of that. What I do want to get rid of are multiple emails containing Excel spreadsheets, Word documents, PDFs with multiple versions, all of which need to be reconciled. And then processes downstream um, uh, uh, with a bond where we perpetuate a mass of checking and reconciliation. Even when people don't make mistakes, we have a massive embedded cost. So when you talk about, um, uh, uh, and, and I'll, I'll make a point, I think sovereigns pay very, very modest fees for uh, the capital raise. Um, uh, Pablo and his ilk are extremely good at extracting uh, the most value for their respective taxpayers. And that, that, that is a, a skill honed over years. Um, so the, the costs are not, fees of intermediaries, I think is the way you described it. It is the embedded fixed cost of um, managing processes, which is a burden on the entire system, and the errors. And I think Godfrey's going to talk about CSDR at some point. Uh, you know, the regulation, the, the price of failure in processes is very, very, very high, not only in terms of failed transactions, but also in terms of sanctions imposed by the regulators. So we all need to do this better. And the technologies which are emerging, which get lumped together in the term blockchain, are already going to be very, very helpful in improving this. And, um, but I think it is one final point, and I know I've spoken for ages. You mentioned HQALX at the beginning, Dominic. I think there is a fantastic example of 
the way the market will develop, which is you have an application of a, a private network um, DLT um, working in tandem with existing uh, institutions and processes. Uh, it's a collaboration. It, this is not about disintermediation. This is not about throwing away the old and replacing with something new. It is about making meaningful changes to the way things get done in order that we all benefit. And, and that, that's the way I would like people to think of the introduction of these new technologies. Apologies for my long answer. Yeah, we've got some very interesting questions coming in um, from Andrea Tranquilini and Greg Chu, and um, Andrea in particular, um, Pablo, you should look at that because I think it's a great segue into something I want to discuss. But um, Charlie, you're, we have, in contrary to what you think, we have a very sophisticated audience who is very engaged with what you're saying. And uh, I'll, I'll read a couple of comments to you. Um, one is from Andrea Tranquilini, you know, who, who, as many of you will know, is, is actually running a, a blockchain-based uh, CSD. Um, he says to you, Charlie, are we saying that dealers are more reticent to change and still require voice dealing instead of proper technologically-based trading? So this is a mild attack on your conservatism there. Greg Chu says, talking about second layer solutions, these amount to layering centralized trusted entities very often are not suited to nor regulated for that purpose. Why should the incumbent operating system adapt to utilize a system of marginal utility that in truth merely works to rearrange the centralized interests? So there, there are two different attacks on the sort of um, softly, softly approach to revolutionizing the bond markets. What's your reaction to those two observations, Charlie? Uh, uh, very simply, I was referring to not to voice broking um, and secondary markets, which are largely um, much of that's gone anyway. I was talking to the about primary markets and the incredibly important interaction between someone like Pablo and his team and the various investment banks that advise and provide advice. Uh, decisions have to be made and they're best discussed um, uh, on the phone uh, or in conference calls. Uh, with accurate data to support those conversations. Um, and, and, and so that's what the sort of voice I'm referring to. Um, I, in re relation to uh, Greg's questions, I think uh, this goes to the heart of what sort of a uh, blockchain uh, uh, is one talking about. Um, I, I, uh, permissionless open blockchains um, uh, are, were the source of much of this. They're brilliant for uh, managing peer-to-peer uh, -peer anonymous networks, we, for example, in, in, in the crypto world, um, uh, I, I personally don't believe they're terribly helpful in um, uh, being used in uh, 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 businesses whereby uh, you require knowledge of everybody you're dealing with, where there are enormous um, regulations uh, and where you require um, a, a known network of counterparties. And, and that's why we're using R3's Corda um, uh, in, a, in a confidential permissioned uh, environment, uh, because we're trying to uh, bring uh, change and improvement to a, a very complicated existing system, uh, where, which involves uh, counterparties established over decades, who you cannot simply sweep away overnight. And people that say that investment banks are going to disappear or that the ICSDs are going to be replaced overnight, or, or the custodians and IPAs. This is, we're talking about markets measured in trillions, tens of trillions, where trust and uh, transparency are terribly important. I'm afraid 
some of the 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 the, suge the suggested solutions simply don't reflect the realities of those markets. Another one, if I if I may, sorry, there, there's uh, to to reply to Andrea Tranquillini's um, question. Um, uh, no, uh, governments. I, I don't think governments are are ready to support digital uh, issuance in the relatively short term. Um, we are, as I said, where the buck stops. We fund um, billions. Uh, in total trillions, uh, and we're the ones who pay for healthcare and education, uh, and we, we need to tap into uh, established, uh, very, very large markets. We are not uh, the institutions to uh, experiment. Uh, we took, it took us 12 years to issue our first linker, inflation-linked bond, uh, and that was using the same infrastructure as everyone else. Uh, and we're, we're, we will have taken 14 years by September to issue our first green bond. We need to be very, very sure of what we're doing because, before we do it, because we need to do it structurally. Uh, and it needs to be a change that is established in stone because we are the government. So we will observe the developments around us in the corporate world, in the agency world, etc., and we will tweak our own systems to save. And I, I like particularly what Charlie said. It's not about cost of fees, the savings. The savings is time in execution, because that is risk that we are assuming in the market. So these incremental tweaks will be significant, but they will be tweaks. Okay. Um, Greg is... Chu is fully engaged in our discussion. He's pointed out zero coupon bonds are quite easy to issue onto a, uh, a permissionless blockchain. But once you start getting, you know, nothing happens between issue and redemption, really. But once you get into conventional bonds, it gets very difficult. Um, he's he's he like you, Charlie, is, is concerned about how we define a distributed ledger. Um, he thinks that permissionless systems are not useful. Um, and he points out, of course, that R3 like a lot of people think, isn't really a, a DLT. It's just a distributed database between a siloed group of users. But anyway, I think we should we should we should move away from from these almost religious questions. And um, uh, what I Andrea asked, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, as I pointed out, he runs a um, a, a blockchain based uh, CSD. And as you pointed out, Charlie, it's often said that CSDs are likely to be the most likely victims of being disintermediated. Uh, in a in a blockchain universe, and if that is the case, and I think you've said you don't think it is, um, what useful functions can they fulfil? Should they become? We often hear they should become governors or gatekeepers to, to permission networks. They should provide private key custody services. They should uh, do transaction validation. They should start maybe even auditing or even correcting errors in smart contracts and so on. Um, Charlie, I think I'm right to say you're a believer that, that CSDs have a, and ICSDs have a, a crucial role to play going forward, but will it be different from what they do today as this technology evolves? And I think we're all agreeing it does evolve. Um, sorry, I've, I've already spoken rather up, but I, I'm happy to, to um, look, I think it, it, whether it's an ICSD or a custodian IPA, um, sometimes when people talk about these markets, uh, one gets the impression that all of these institutions are sitting there like King Canute, um, not doing anything and, and, and hoping the tide doesn't rise. This is simply not the case. Uh, every organization uh, 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 on the planet um, is thinking about what digital transformation means. Some are very advanced in that thinking, some are not. Um, those that, that don't have a plan, um, 
will, uh, in Darwinian fashion, probably become extinct because they will simply get left behind. But the vast majority of organizations uh, do have some form of plan um, and, and they will move. And, and the idea that these in incredibly important uh, infrastructures are not doing things. Um, DTCC, for example, is famously and very publicly uh, already published uh, analysis and reports about what it's doing both in equities and private placements. Um, and uh, uh, you can see with Deutsche Borsa, uh, Clearstream, their involvement in HQALX, uh, you know, there is a lot of work going on and there is a major digital transformation taking place. Everybody wants to reduce uh, 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 manual touches uh, uh, simply because of the, the need, the desire to reduce the need for reconciliation, uh, human errors. There are plenty of things that can be done better by machines, not in some sort of hideous um, uh, dystopian world, but in a, in, in a uh, uh, calculations are best performed by computers, not by multiple people all uh, uh, doing the same calculation, um, using the same formulas, the same objective logic, and then sending swift messages around to each other to confirm that they've all performed the, the calculation correctly. This is a, a world of 50 years ago, not a world of, of the 2020s. So I think um, we, we need to think some of this is incredibly uh, process. It's not very sexy. It's not terribly exciting but it's vital and essential. And the existing incumbents will play a major role in that. Okay, thanks, Charlie. Judith, so what, what is the upside of blockchain for um, some of the intermediaries involved here? I'm thinking here of, of issuers, I'm thinking of investors, but I'm also thinking of the, the, the true intermediaries, the, the investment banks, for example. What's the, what are the benefits that they get from blockchain? Yeah, uh, okay, let me answer that question first before making some clarifications. So uh, definitely, as Charlie mentioned, I think uh, the concept of smart contracts enables uh, institutions to lower their costs and you know automate a lot of tasks. Uh, a lot of people say that, okay, we already have software, so which can do that calculations. So why smart contracts are uh, different from that? I think smart contracts uh, with the help of uh, blockchain technology or DLT, uh, you can, as you can assign value to digital assets and you can trade them. Uh, so it makes more sense to use software those, for those kind of transactions and it will eliminate hopefully a lot of errors. Uh, but also I think some of the benefits are uh, touching to regulators or governments who are trying to ensure that everything is going as intended in line with the rules uh, and regulations. Uh, so what we are doing, for example, is we are uh, embedding the rules within the smart contracts so that those digital assets, when they are issued during their life cycle, they won't be able to do something against the set rules or agreed rules, even uh, you know, one of the stakeholders or one of the parties tries to do that. And obviously, like performing transactions faster uh, will eliminate uh, risks. Uh, a lot of risks, counterparty risks is, I think, a major one for the financial institutions. Uh, 
so that was my that is my answer to, to your question, Dominic. But I should clarify one thing. Uh, so I think you know I have been talking about this blockchain related stuff uh, since 2017, and uh, I think you know one thing Charlie mentioned is very important, which is like when you're talking about stuff, uh, in general, people end up misunderstanding you or maybe I'm not uh, communicating myself good enough. But the thing is, so for example, when you say blockchain, a lot of people still confuse it with cryptocurrencies, uh, which a lot of people, again, things are these are like dodgy stuff used by uh, money launderers, etc. So uh, the, the, the concept of using public blockchains or private blockchains, it's, it's a choice the, the players will make. So it's not up to me. But what I'm saying is, uh, the, when you use a blockchain, public blockchain, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not informed about who is involved in those transactions. You can, so for example, one way we, you know, we operate is that we create dedicated smart contracts, which uh, whitelist or blacklist investors or stakeholders. So basically, not even even the software sits on public blockchain and operates with those trusts. It doesn't mean that everyone around the world could become a party of that transaction, or that transaction will be visible to anyone. Because what we can do is we can also encrypt transactions before putting on the blockchain with the same methods which are being used for the last couple of decades when banks are transacting with each other. Thanks, Jay. Now, um, we're, we're halfway through our allotted time scale, so I'd, I'd like, to, and, and you've been very patient, Gottfried, uh, I'd like to bring you in to talk a little bit about trading. We're in a marketplace where, um, you know, voice trading has been declining relative to electronic trading, you know, to, to the point Andrea raised. Um, primary dealers are, are shrinking in number. Um, CCPs are being increasingly used, mainly because they offer the benefit of, of, of netting. Um, what do you do? You have a view on on whether blockchain can improve on the way things are evolving or accelerate the way things are evolving, or is it kind of irrelevant to what's happening right now because it's not sufficiently mature? Okay. The the first thing I want to say is that. Uh, we work on legacy systems, right? Particularly in the banking sector. And our focus has been on the trading, not on the post-trading, right? So I was a member of the Giovannini Group more than 25 years now, and we haven't actually moved very far. We did an EPTF uh, work with the commission a few years ago to take stock on the, at the time of the commission then to where have we gone? And so as happens in those official circles, we have done a very good job we cut many trees to print a lot of paper. We basically we merged barriers together so we had less barriers. And I came up as the disruptor as always. Oh, but there are new barriers, you know, intraday liquidity, for instance. So, so the things haven't changed, and I agree with Pablo. Those things go very, very slow because you've got to be sure what, you could, what you're going to do, right? So I do think the digitalization, the whatever you want to call it, bring benefit, but we haven't been able to apply them in a practical way to actually what happens once you issue a bond. And so uh, the, the role of CSDs was explained there. The ECB tried to do this under the name EDI, and now it's called DCM. You know, primary issuance can be harmonized better. And there was huge opposition, not only from 
um, certain member states, but also from the primary dealers and also the banks who are involved in this, right? And it's, it's all about, and I bring this a very broad statement, commercial and national protectionism interests, right? And that hasn't gone away at all. And we see this in the new legislation. There is always, there's always different opinions, which is good. One thing I do miss in this whole markets, and I'm now a long time in this market, is we, as and we the older, we are the dinosaurs. Pablo is maybe younger than the rest of us here, and, and uh, uh, Junit as well. But you know, we don't pass on our knowledge to the new generations. And I get uh, a couple of years ago, one of the new members in ICMA said, "What's a telex? Never seen a telex in my life. What's this? This is not a new invention. This is an old invention." So we are unable to grab the benefits of digitalization, you know, blockchain and all that stuff into the old world and harmonize it in a way that it's efficient. Now, one experiment, not an experiment, a reality is the common domain model, right? ISDA started with this for derivatives. ISDA and ICMA are now very much involved. It's really a focus. That should have been there before we talked about SFTR, Security Finance Trade Repository. You know, it should have there before the derivatives uh, repository because there we have a lot of teething problems, cost a lot of money, and actually there is no benefit yet, right? And we have the repo seminar, you know, the outstanding, we know more or less which country issues where we have new issues, now the European Union issuing, uh, but we don't have enough transparency, we don't have enough data. And, and I think that goes all over the place of banking. There is not enough knowledge, particularly going to the regulatory side or the, you know, the official side, people don't understand how these markets function. That's why I participate in stuff like this, Dominic, to, to pass the knowledge, to make people aware that there, there is much more than you see in the headlines in the Financial Times, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I once was told by a central banker, you believe everything in the, in the pink paper? No, I don't. But at least it gives you some hunch of what's going on and you can then call your friends and find the information. So I, I think we, we have to do much more education. And then the blockchains of this world will come into better use for what the market yeah, really needs to achieve. We, who do we need to educate? A number of you have said we need to educate. I mean, as far as I can tell, our audience is very up to speed with, with, with what's blockchain and what isn't and, and so on. Who do we need to educate? Are you talking about regulators? Are you talking about bond market traders? Are you talking about investors, asset managers? Who, who everybody, you... everybody. Because, you know, the, the people you have online, it's, you know, are, are the specialists, right? But that specialists, of course, all have... Uh, you know, a goal, you know, to get rich, right, to, to make money. But uh, sometimes, you know, you do things for free to, for the common benefit. And I, and I think you know, it's good that everybody participates in this discussion, but we need to do um, not only regulators, um, supervisors, you know, um, the ones who look at systemic risk, ECB, the ESRB, there's so many, and, and I'm always... So frustrated by, you know, my God, you know, every five years they have to change job because, you know, it's not good to stay in the same job. And then the knowledge goes and you have to start again. Remember, Dominic, the book we made about Repo with Natasha, the big book? There are no more, right? And every week I can give another one to somebody in the commission because there's somebody new in charge. And they don't, this is important, you know, um, there is so much to do. We think too much in silos. We should think much more horizontal, you know, because primary issues is influenced by secondary market, repo market, security lending market, you know, all those, you know, CSDR, SFTR, you know, there's many acronyms. You know, this is, this is the problem. We're going to come to CSDR in a minute, but could you yeah. just talk us through a little bit about the impact of blockchain on the, on the, 
the repo market, the securities financing side, people often forget that this is a major driver of, of liquidity in the in the bond markets. We've had we've we've touched on HQLAX, which is looking to tokenize things so collateral yeah. can be moved more efficiently. I might say Greg Chu says, what does HQLX actually achieve? It's really just a bit of window dressing. So users can say they're doing blockchain to their to their stakeholders, but a harsh judgment on it there. But um, theoretically, if you start to tokenize assets and new asset classes, they become available as collateral, don't they? So this could broaden the range of acceptable collateral, even to get central bank money, let alone commercial bank money, let alone what you could do in, in tri-party. So are you excited about the impact of blockchain networks on the repo markets or not? I think it's a very good initiative. I know Guido very well, of course. I won't say anything bad about HQLX, but it's a beginning, right? It's only for banks to banks. It's only uh, for government bonds. You know, this has a long way to go. And I think there are some benefits because moving collateral from A to B to C doesn't work, right? We had a major uh, problem with uh, an ATS recently. We discussed this yesterday in, in the ERCC and, and nobody understands what happened, but it's not really the ATSs. And thanks goodness we had a voice broker who picked up the slack, right? It was two, three days because otherwise we would not have been able to finance Spanish government debt or corporate debt or anything. So, so we, we don't really understand enough uh, you know, I mean, on a very broad way now, how everything is mixing together. And so, yes, HQLA is one way forward, but there'd be many, many more ways. And we have to experiment. Sandbox, you know, the DMOs are doing something like a sandbox now. And, and I always thought, you know, uh, is it uh, like my children playing in sand and then the cat spits and everything goes, uh, you know, underwater. I think we have to be very careful how we do this. And, and so it will take a long time, like Alberto said, unfortunately, Alberto is not here anymore. But, uh, you know, this should happen in three years and in 30 years, it still will not have happened, right? We need to be very careful, Pablo, not to disrupt the market. And we have to be aware of that this digitalization is not the end game. It's the beginning of an evolution that will take many, many years before we get there. Mm -hmm. Andrea says, I totally agree with Gottfried. There's a huge opposition to change. The biggest players uh, need to be willing to set the, the, the pace of change. Now, you've, you've mentioned um, CSDR mm -hmm. um, and, you know, a number of ICMA papers have launched pretty um, explicit attacks on the mandatory buy-in regime in particular as likely to cause, a, you know, widening of spreads, loss of liquidity, higher cost of um, of capital for people. And we've, we've seen a, um, a commission review of CSDR came out, I think yesterday, um, it had a majority of the respondents saying that the, the mandatory buyers are totally disproportionate. As I say, decreased liquidity, increased costs and so on, undermine hedging. Um, and it says that if buy-in, if the buy-in regime was enforced in the spring of last year, when COVID-19 came along, you know, the world would have, would have collapsed. The impact of the market being far, far worse. So I read the, the commission document to say, actually, they're going to take a good long look at this. They might move towards voluntary rather than mandatory buy-ins. Um, there is a minority, they, they report there, who's still in favor of, of, of moving to a mandatory regime. But the commission's going to review this. And the parliament is also saying uh, they'd like to, to review it, um, particularly in the light of Brexit. Uh, perhaps a bit concerned that either Switzerland or, or the UK might become a home for, for business which is not affected by CSDR. Um, I'm not really sure what I'm asking here, but but do you I, do you I mean, what's what do you think is going to happen? Are we going to get mandatory buy-ins or not? Um, no, and yes, <laughs> okay. uh, because if you talk to and Pablo can maybe respond to that from the official sector, uh, it it's seen as a necessary evil, 
because you know there is uh, things happened, eh, particularly in the sovereign debt crisis, that you know um, uh, Pablo's predecessor uh, was very clear about it. We don't want speculators to ruin our government bond financing, right? On the other hand, um, the way it was envisaged uh, by uh, the authorities. Um, wasn't appropriately researched. And only recently in the ERCC, we have got the data from the ECB to actually show where are the fails. And the majority of fails, 80% is in equities and other products, only 20% in bond markets and even less in government bond markets. So the data already tell us, you know, maybe we should focus in different segments of the market and not an overall cover. Secondly, I do think the buy-in regime, voluntary buy-in uh, regime works to a degree, but I remember a dealer telling me he's now uh, working also for an official um, authority, like we could have bought a bond in Venezuela and in 10 years, uh, the, we know we actually get the money back and there's no point buying in because you can't get it. This is insurance companies and pension funds who will never lend it to you, right? So, so you need oil on the wheels in these markets. So I, I think it's an appropriate way from the commission to open again the consultation. What we discovered actually yesterday on the call was it's not always uh, sellers or buyers who don't deliver. It is the infrastructure, the outdated, you know, clearing and settlement that doesn't function the way it should function. And actually... We, more and more we dig in details, more and more we find out, ah, it's not somebody shorting and not wanting to deliver. Everybody wants to, to honor his obligations. It's the system. You know, the, the, the way everything has been dissected into vertical silos, bring it together in a horizontal look, and then you'll find solutions. And I think, I, think that I commend the commission of opening again the box of Pandora, but we have to be very careful that we don't close it in an inappropriate way, right? So I do agree with ICMA that we have to be very careful I'm not saying it's mandatory buying. We not stay there, but maybe as the stick behind the door, right? We need carrots to make people to adjust their systems. So I don't think, I'm not immediately clear if this will be um, the mandatory clearing that's scheduled for beginning of next year will be extended for another year. But I do need, we need to discuss this much more with the authorities to find an appropriate solution that the markets don't get damaged. But I, I wait for Pablo's uh, opinion now on, yeah. The government give, side. Give, give, us, give us a flavour. So, CSDR, the settlement disciplinary regime, is very much a continental European perspective. It, it, it seems very odd to, to Anglo-Saxon ears with their habits of short selling and, and hedge funds and uh, market making and so on. Uh, not just in, in, in the Eurobond market or in or any kind of lesser corporate credit, but in ETFs as well. And small cap equities, all of which could be damaged by an overzealous uh, settlement discipline regime, but anyway, we're talking about bond markets. So, what's can we tempt you to respond to Gottfried's invitation to give us a flavour of how you think the debate is going? Well, I'm a, I'm a civil servant, and, and therefore I'm, uh, I'm I'm highly skilled at the art of dodging. So th this is this is what I think I'll I'll, I'll do on this occasion. No, but in general, look, um, we just want to create the most stable environment that everybody can trust and that everybody will want to participate knowing that um, fails will be penalized. Whether or not calibration is necessary, the commission has just shown we in government are eager to learn. We know we're not specialists at this, so we're eager to learn. And this is why the Sandbox Initiative is um, um, a good one, which is an, an, an environment in which um, regulation is 
is, is, is lifted to see exactly what we need to tweak because tweaking is what will be required. We are um, scared of revolutions and big bangs and um, things that might, uh, you know, it, it's, the, it's the tiny little tweaks that we didn't make to the regulation uh, that will destroy, uh, that might destroy uh, the, 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 um, the whole. Right. So we are very, very scared of the small tweaks that we didn't do. So the safe environment in which to prepare these are the sandboxes. And this is why the Commission's launched its DLT um, pilot program. And this is why at the Spanish level, um, Spain has launched in November of last year a sandbox. And along with the UK's, it's the only operational sandbox out there in which companies from all over the world can test their, their DLT-based um, products, not just, but, but mostly, um, um, and, and, and see what, uh, what we as regulators need to learn. So, you know, what, what I want to say is that we all, we're, we're eager to learn, uh, we're eager to set up a safe environment for that learning to take place, but we are extremely risk-averse because we will always pride, uh, we will always uh, um, prioritize uh, um, safety over um, um, that moment of time saved and that moment of, of fees saved, right? So um, we are where the buck stops. And so, you know, that, that is what we want to, uh, to ensure. But, but we, we do wish to publicize the sandbox attitude, both of the commission and of certain governments, not least Spain. But at this point, we can be confident if we move towards blockchain-based tokenized bond markets, that the CSTR regime will apply just as readily to them as it does to the existing bond markets. That, that's a reasonable deduction to make at this point, is it not? Dominic, you're throwing a whole bunch of things there together, which are incredibly sweeping, but I'm not sure um, are, 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 are a necessary combination of words. Blockchains and, you know, what, what is tokenization? So that that very question will get will get. Shall I tell you what I mean by that? We'll get, but it will get six different answers from six different players. So you, you know, I think I think we need to be very careful about what we're saying is happening or what we're trying to do. Sorry. Well, let me let me put my sixth definition in. I mean that it's a digital representation of a financial security on a blockchain in tokenized form so that it can be moved around um, at zero marginal cost. And so- Re representation, representation is what we're doing now, uh, which is taking an existing instrument and representing it on a ledger in order to be able to uh, uh, action upon lifecycle processes. A, a fully tokenized asset is not a representation. It, it is the asset. The new issues can be direct, issued directly into digital wallets, yes. It, it is the asset. It, it has no form other than it is a native digital asset. So we've got to be really, really careful what we're talking about here. And so when we talk about tokenization of existing bonds, very often we're not. We're talking about they may involve a token. So, for example, a payment token or, 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 or something like that. But it is not a full tokenization. And we need to get this language and a, a, a better, because it, unless we have clarity of expression, but we won't be able to move forward. Um, and I make a particular plea here 
which is that governments and regulators have an enormously important part in term, uh, to play in terms of making statutes and de defining regulations. I think they, they need to do that. What they shouldn't be doing is trying to define what the architecture is and, and how it happens. This is not a public sector role in order to do that. So uh, by all means, regulate, impose the guidelines, give the freedom as they've done in Luxembourg and Switzerland and in Germany about uh, allowing for other forms of, um, uh, or di forms of digital assets to exist and to, to be uh, experimented with. But please don't try to design the, the manner in which the markets operate. Well, let's, let's talk about one thing which, which central banks and regulators could do, which is issue a central bank digital currency. You, Charlie, just mentioned payment tokens, for example, because you can't get a fiat currency, if you like, and forgive me, using these shorthands becomes difficult to discuss things if you don't, but you can't settle fiat currency on a blockchain. So you have to come off the chain to go through the normal correspondent banking RTGS infrastructure. So if we get CBDCs, is this puts the, the cash leg of every bond transaction theoretically onto a blockchain, however we choose to describe that. Now, is that the key to unlocking the explosion of, uh, of tokenization? I've heard everything you've said about, about tokenization, Charlie. Is this the key to- I, I don't, I think it, look, I think it's an incredibly important step. And what uh, Banque, Banque de France did on the EIB transaction in itself, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a small transaction. It's a very giant leap in terms of Banque de France providing a token. Um, but it's not, there are so, to go to Pablo's point, there are so many incremental pieces of the puzzle that need to be solved. I, I often say when describing uh, what's happening is we're laying new tracks and rails uh, on a very long journey, uh, which currently in our world anyway, uh, will run the existing rolling stock. So the same carriages and engines that we use today run on those rails. As soon as the, uh, the new uh, uh, rolling stock and the new engines, twice as fast, three times as comfortable, whatever are ready, they will be able to run on those tracks. But we need to run to lay those now. So CBDC, uh, central bank cash on ledger to fuel atomic settlement, an atomic settlement will have all sorts of benefits uh, for every, this is the instantaneous, the simultaneous transfer of title and, uh, um, and, and payment. It, when we get to that, we reduce counterparty risk, we reduce uh, 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 settlement risk intraday or, or T plus five, all of this sort of stuff. So huge benefits will accrue to everybody. So the amount of capital required in the system will go down. But before we get to that, there are a ton of things that we can do, that, which we can introduce true? into the existing is system. It, is it true that atomic settlement gives you benefits? What happens to netting in that? Or don't you have to pre-fund in order to achieve that? Doesn't it actually drive up your costs and your capital allocations? You have to have the money. You well, don't you, want, don't, don't you want to know if somebody has the money before you trade with them? I mean, that, that, well, that, that, present, that, well, in the present system, we don't have to. We have, we have CCPs to do that, which net it all down. In the cash markets, we have CLS to net it all down. That delivers huge value. No, no, no. Net I don't back. agree with CCPs, right? CCPs are as much a uh, victim to fails as the market. In fact, CCP should have no fails. And I think that's why ESMA has created the CCP supervisory body now, because 
things are not where they should be. And we have a lot of huge discussions with the CCPs on clearing and settlement efficiency. So CCPs are not a miracle. Eh? CCPs are uh, something invented by the G20 said, oh, this is the, 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 the honeymoon. This is the end of the world uh, and no, no, more, no more problems. No, no, CCPs is something too big to fail and too big to, you know, to save, right? So, so we have to be very careful with CCPs, right? Because uh, they're only an intermediary, right? To create netting. I agree, it's good for capital consumption or savings, but, but there is dangers in CCPs as well. Eh? So don't, Dominic, don't go too far in what you think, you know. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, like the Marines, we mustn't leave any question unanswered. And um, Pedro Baez has been very patiently waiting for me to ask this question, waited half an hour, in fact. Where are we in terms of standardization or agreement between stakeholders? Uh, I don't know whether he's asking there about um, the standardization of, of, of you know, data standards on a, on a blockchain network or whether he's asking about the extension of SWIFT or the extension of ISO 2022 to, uh, to, to inside banks and to be applied to APIs and all the rest of it. But the, the underlying point he makes is a good one, which is if you're going to reform this system, do you approach it collaboratively and agree on certain ways of doing business or can you rely on the normal process of competition and, and commercial behavior to get to where you, you want to go? Um, Junit, do you you haven't said anything for a while? Do you do you and here you are trying to to sell a service? Um, do you think the process of competition and commercial behaviour is the value you're creating is enough to to create change? I think in an ideal world, like if you're talking about standards, like by definition, it should be something like inclusive. You know, you should go to every stakeholder, like map the processes, like get get the feedback from everyone, and have something like, you know, which fits or agreed by almost everyone. I mean, you at the end of the day, you won't be able to make everyone happy by definition, but still at least, you know, most of the people involved in this uh, world will be happy and it will be comprehensive because the, the problem is like um, when you're building an infrastructure, like, you know, and you implement it. And at some point, if you realize that, oh, okay, this piece is missing, like you need to work back and make that, you know, uh, change, which will affect a lot of other stuff, which is, you know, touching to that system. And especially in the world of smart contracts, uh, which is known to be immutable, uh, that will create another layer of problems uh, in the path, in the, in the future, because like you, you, in that case, you'll be talking about, okay, you create a bond, which is like managed or governed by a smart contract, but after two years, you're saying, okay, there's something terribly wrong about this smart contract and you need to work back and correct it. And it will have its own problems uh, in the blockchain world. So, uh, so in an ideal world, as I said, it should be you know, a collaborative effort, but in, in the real world, I think it will, be, it will feel more like a competition. Mm -hmm. Now, um, we, we have slightly less than five minutes left, and we've had a question from a, a member of our audience, which is initially aimed at, at, at Charlie, but I think you might all have views on this. Where do you see the biggest opportunities for digitization and blockchain in capital markets over the next 10 years? In other words, where should fintechs, startups focus their efforts, and, and what, should, what should banks be 
be doing. And I might just share with you uh, an observation which which Greg Chu made uh, earlier on, which is that uh, um, the, the, the major banks are facing this tidal wave of change. He draws a distinction between digitalization and digitization. Um, and uh, we're, we're, we're like surfers on this tidal wave. And the mistake we're all making, according to Greg, is that, is that we think this is just a little wave, but in fact, it's a massive one. Um, and he doesn't think that either side, the blockchain advocates on one side or the incumbent operators on the other, understand what those changes mean. He's asking us to draw a definition between digitization and digitalization. I'm a bit wary of making definitions um, after being ticked off by Charlie for being careless with my use of language, but I would think that uh, by digitalization, we mean the impact of digital technology on the economy as a whole. And digitization means actually turning specific objects into, into digital uh, items or digital representations. But to, to go back to, to, to the, the core question by the member of the audience, and I think this is a great note to end on, um, where are the biggest opportunities for digitization, whatever that means, cap blockchain? Um, where, where, would, where should fintechs focus? Where should banks be worried? Um, Charlie, perhaps you could go first. Just very briefly, and I promise I'll be brief. I don't think this is a battle between incumbent operators and DeFi. This is, this is not the right way to frame this conversation. And I repeat my comments of earlier on, the idea that the existing incumbents are not involved in deep digitalization and digitization of their, their work streams is, is, is simply, um, you know, it, it, it's casting them in a light that is, is simply not the case. Um, uh, uh, so I think it, it, there is a, uh, our view is that collaboration uh, amongst all of the stakeholders uh, will yield very substantial benefits in terms of the, uh, the, the great goals of straight through processing, uh, the reduction in errors, uh, the, the waste of time. If I look back at my old job, I spent more than 30 years doing bond issues for people, fortunately for people like Pablo, um, and some fantastic transactions. Uh, I have countless experience of those. All of those were done sending emails with Word documents and PDFs and emails. And along the way, we had very helpful technology like Iprio's uh, issue net and investor access coming along and helping us. But compared to the revolution that's taken place in our personal financial services, what we can do on our phones and what we can do in the bond markets, it's pathetic. So we're just moving uh, uh, to the modern world. And this is not about one side's going to win and the other side's going to lose. I, it, it drives me crazy, this, 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 this idea that it's just a war. Since you've raised Iprio, Charlie, what, what, what happened to, to Iprio in the end? The idea was that it would make the bond issuance process much more efficient. They added some investor functionality. It's, it's, it's the <laughs> dominant, it's the, I, don't, I don't own shares in IHS market, but it remains the dominant technology in, in book building, um, uh, and uh, allocations and reconciling those books. There is no alternative to it at this point. Um, other, you know, banks have elements of proprietary things, but you, you know, uh, it, it is it's it's old tech, but it's it's the dominant technology. But is it is it a positive tale for what we're talking about here? We're Absolutely, buying... the, the the scale of the transactions. I mean, Pablo should speak to this because we couldn't manage, uh, or the market couldn't function 
the primary markets without it. Pablo. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I, I think it wouldn't be possible for Italy to do 10 yards and for us to do 15 yards within 24 hours of each other uh, without this technology. Uh, with more than 400 line items reconciled in just under two hours. That two hours could potentially become one hour with small tweaks in technology. Uh, but the, the change has been huge. And back from the days in which the primary dealers used to send Excel spreadsheets, which we would have to print out and scan through to see if any allocation proposal was off, uh, and then have a call to say, what's this about? Uh, it is a, a huge change. And I can't wait to see the future changes, but incremental and tweaks. Okay, so that, that's a, that's a, it is a positive story then. So where, where, where's the next um, opportunity to our to a member of our audience here, and what's the, the next big opportunity, the next IPRIO opportunity in the bond markets from your point of view, Pablo? Um, allocation and reconciliation. Um, uh, a number plate system using the LEI or what have you to identify each investor uh, into a um, database um, um, to see whether it's a hedge fund, whether it's an asset manager, etc. Um, the current currently there is too much conversation going on between uh, the the banks, uh, the, the the lead managing banks, as to the nature and identity of every particular investor. That is a conversation that has to be had with the current technology. But that's where the sp- space for DLT based technology to improve things very significantly. Mm-hmm. So we've run a, a minute over, but I'd like to just give um, Junit and Godfrey a, a, a last word as well. You, we, we've been talking about IPRIO as an example of successful modernization of infrastructure in the bond markets. And you've heard Pablo talk about allocations as being the next big uh, opportunity. Um, we, we touched on how you go about this, whether you can rely on commercial. And clearly in the case of Vipri, it was a commercial initiative. I think I'm right to say, Charlie, no. Um, we have had attempted collaborative initiatives. There was Project Mars. I, I, I'm never quite clear what happened to that in the That's, end. That, that is now direct books. So that is okay. evolved into a very significant new competitor to IPRIO. Okay, so both of these methodologies work. Uh, What I was going to say, uh, um, uh, here are you um, engaged in a commercial initiative um, to to change things. What gives you the confidence that you can achieve the change you want to see in the uh, the bond markets purely by commercial means? Uh, I think, first of all, there's a growing interest uh, of blockchain solutions and smart contracts. That's one thing. And the other thing is like market is changing as well. Like the, the, the conventional market with the green bonds and ESG, uh, there are like, you know, additional requirements, I think uh, from infrastructure perspective. And I think blockchain solutions could fit those needs very well. That's that's my personal view. But uh, I, I would like to have a, you know, a small comment about the question. Uh, and, you know, it, it, a lot of people ask questions about like uh, how fintech companies compete against incumbents, how banks will change, blah, blah. And I think uh, there are like, you know, there's an unseen competition, which will be more apparent in the upcoming years in the market. This is my uh, like perception or forecast, whatever you call it. Uh, so there are a number of really big and, you know, uh, capable companies which are not doing a lot of stuff in those markets 
including like, you know, Apple's, Amazon's, Microsoft, Google, Google's. I, I think like at some point these, uh, you know, huge companies will start exploring, uh, you know, what we are trying to do. And, you know, I assume they will have a lot of uh, advantages compared to incumbents and existing fintechs. Charlie, did you want to say something or were you just, were you? No, no, I was waving goodbye to Pablo. Okay. Uh, sorry. Pablo's left. Okay. okay. Um, Gottfried, last word from you. Very uh, last word. Uh, we tend to talk too much uh, banks to banks, sell side to sell side. Watch the buy side. The buy side will move the agenda much faster than the banks ever would have thought uh, even today. So I think that's the crucial changes that will be held by the digitalization of this market. Uh -huh. That's all. Well, it's music to my ears to hear you say that, Godfrey, because I was ticked off the other day for suggesting that the buy side is the source of all change uh, in financial markets because they're the source of investment. But uh, uh, at least we're on the same side. That's a great note to, to end on, but I think we must stop. We've run five minutes over. Um, I'd like to thank our panellists. Um, Pablo sadly had to, to head off, but many thanks to him. Charlie, thank you very much for your uh, contribution. Gottfried, as always, uh, a pleasure to work with you. And Junique, great to hear um, that you think change can be achieved, um, albeit uh, not at quite the pace we would like to see. Uh, but for now, it's goodbye. Mm -hmm.